podcast listeners. I am your host, Jacko Zwetsud. Welcome to the NK News podcast. Today is Friday, February 26, 2021. Joining me via Zoom are four members of the NK News reporting team to discuss some of the latest developments in and around North Korea. But first, please leave a review about this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you use, and please share the podcast with your colleagues, friends, and even enemies. Secondly, check out NK News, where you can find all the in-depth stories written by the excellent journalists who I'll be talking to today. Consider buying a subscription for a year. It's more affordable than you think. In fact, if you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and it helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues here put out every day. Joining me via Zoom, we have NK News and NK Pro founder and managing director, Chad O'Carroll. We also have Jongmin Kim, Min Chao Choi, and Wong Gijong, three key members of the crack NK News reporting team. Welcome on board, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. And Chad, since you're leaving early for another Zoom call, let's talk to you first. Uh, first of all, we woke up this morning to an interesting story from North Korea with uh, uh, a fascinating, slightly humorous, but also a troubling photograph. Uh, Chad, tell us what's happening with the uh, Russian diplomats in North Korea. On Thursday, eight uh, Russian diplomats, including uh, spouses and children, left uh, North Korean territory up, up from the northeast uh, near Rasson uh, into uh, the far east of Russia um, across a, a rail bridge. Uh, the thing that was really notable about it is that they had to cross the rail bridge in this bizarre uh, rail trolley contraption which uh, has effectively been made by the North Koreans for single service use. It's like a one, one way train to Russia. Um, the reason they've had to do this is because the North Korean paranoia about COVID-19 is so strong that they will not allow uh, Russian aircraft into Pyongyang to collect diplomats that way. They will not allow Russian railways to come in, Russian vehicles. Uh, so the only way to transport these people out, uh, and I'm told this took a lot of uh, pressure from the from Moscow Foreign Ministry headquarters on Pyongyang to make happen, was to um, have the North Koreans build this uh, contraption and then for the last uh, kilometer or so of the crossing to have the Russians push themselves across with all their bags and stuff like that on top. So it's pretty, uh, pretty wild photos and videos that the Russian Foreign Ministry released today. They they did leave on Tuesday um, up to Chongjin overnight in Chongjin. We're told by sources, and then um, another rail journey up to Rasson, and from there on, uh, getting up to the bridge where we saw them crossing today. Oh, so many questions there, Chad, but I guess the most important one is um, this uh, rail contraption that the North Koreans built. Is that like the thing we saw in the Roadrunner cartoons where it's a sort of a push-pull cart to uh, to move along the railway tracks without an engine? It's not that dissimilar, but this one doesn't have the, the pump action uh, motor. Um, okay, so people actually have to walk along behind it on the rails, uh, on the sleepers, and push it ahead of them, like a like a luggage cart. Yeah, that's what it looks like. And this one actually looks quite polished. We understand that another Russian citizen uh, who was very sick, uh, working at the Rasson Contrans project late last year, had to also leave on one of these contraptions. But the one he had to leave on was a lot um, 
a lot more homemade style. They looked a lot worse. And uh, I mean, he was very sick, apparently on a, on a chair on the middle of it, being towed out um, by a colleague. Yeah, it, 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 it's a, a pretty, pretty memory, memory inducing photo, photograph. Yeah, yeah, no, it certainly is. And uh, we encourage everyone uh, listening to go onto the NK News website and, and have a look at that story that Chad's published. Uh, yeah. Why are the Russians leaving, Chad? Well, everyone that's been based in Pyongyang for the last uh, year, uh, it's been over a year now since the border uh, border restrictions were imposed, have been undergoing a uh, really difficult set of living circumstances. Um, one diplomatic source told me that even though he's been in the country for a very long time, he's made to feel like a COVID patient wherever he goes. Um, there are so many rules and regulations prohibiting movement. Um, and recently, um, the North Koreans imposed restrictions on uh, family members. So children of diplomats are no longer, haven't been allowed into many of the restaurants in Pyongyang uh, for some weeks now. The schools that the diplomats send their children to, we've, we've been told by sources that the hours have been decreased dramatically. There's no food coming in from overseas. Importantly, there's no medicine coming in. And um, there are growing fears among the, the handful of uh, expats that are left in North Korea that medical supplies are, are getting too low. And the, the knock-on effect of all of this is that when there is a health emergency, um, it takes a long time to evacuate someone. And the, the treatment on offer in um, the Friendship Hospital and places like that is, is uh, extremely limited. And we've even heard of, of one source saying that they were aware of um, someone being turned down treatment at the Friendship mm. Hospital, whose sole purpose it is to help you know, diplomats and tourists and so on. Who are, so who's know. left at the Russian embassy now? Well, the Russians are still the biggest. I mean, um, the thing that's different about Russian embassies compared to other uh, countries are that the Russian Federation dispatches uh, gardeners, cooks, cleaners, all from Russia. It doesn't hire local staff for those jobs, whereas most countries would be a combination of um, expat diplomats and local support staff. So they still have very high numbers. I would guess there would still be a few several dozen at, at the very least who are still working there but all of this i mean the, when you zoom out and look at this from an international relations perspective the thing that's really notable is russia is a relatively close country to north korea yeah. uh, not as close as china obviously but there is nothing here to suggest that this is a relationship built on friendship and solidarity mm. when the russians are treated like this and we've heard from sources that uh, the Russian foreign ministry is very unhappy about this. And it's probably why I put these photos and videos out on right. its public uh, Telegram account, slightly tongue in cheek, um, because it, at the end of the day, this reflects badly on the North Koreans. We've yeah. also heard the Chinese are subject to the same restrictions. There's no special carve out for them. Um, and there so if they want to leave, they'll be using the same kind of contraption. Well, for them, it's a bit easier because they can leave uh, to Dandong across the Friendship Bridge up there, uh, right. which has a, a road um, on it and the railway. The problem with the Russian uh, land border is it's just rail. The options are, are more limited there. But the bottom line is North Korea isn't make, making any exceptions for anyone 
Yeah. It's creating friction um, with uh, diplomats working in Pyongyang from uh, friendly countries, but the North Koreans don't seem to care about that because, and they're probably right here, ultimately it's unlikely to upset the strategic balance in terms of who their friends and foes are. And it's a sinking lid, isn't it? Because for everyone who leaves, uh, there are no new diplomats allowed to come back in, and that border's been closed for over a year. So really, it's just it's a it's a shrinking, a forever shrinking pool of diplomats until uh, whenever the North Korean government decides that it's safe again to reopen the borders, and that could you know that might be next year for all we know, right? Yeah, I think we're going to probably get to a point where it will um, just be excluding Chinese and Russian, maybe. Uh, under 10 people, maybe by late summer. Uh, I, I'm talking about 10 diplomats and family members excluded. And when you consider the Chinese and Russian downsizes that are on the cards, um, yeah, it's going to be a really skeleton presence. And it just means that the outside world has even less visibility of what's going on in North Korea than it did, even in what have now become the very worst circumstances since the Korean War, I would say. And um, the flip side is that the North Koreans have much less of a, an ability to understand the outside world and foreign perspectives uh, at their headquarters in Pyongyang because there are, there are uh, much fewer meetings going on between the foreign ministry and even friendly countries. And so their um, perception of the outside world is coming from a much more isolated starting point. Yes, and I'm going to ask uh, Jongmin later on about uh, the possibility of the, the World Food Programme uh, leaving Korea, but that's certainly a, a related topic. Uh, Chad, you've got a, a new tool, a new uh, analysis tool on NK Pro that's tracking the visits of delegations to and from North Korea. Tell us a bit about that. Uh, yeah, we've just launched the NK Pro Delegation Tracker. It's a interactive research tool which um, has data on over 7,500 delegations that have gone into North Korea or from North Korea to foreign countries. Um, basically, it's based, we've manually extracted the data by meticulously going through North Korean official uh, English and Korean uh, reporting from KCNA, Rodon Shinman, um, and built this database to um, give you some insight, give users some insight into which countries are sending the most people on these kind of friendship delegations, cultural trips, uh, sports delegations, political parties, visiting, things like that. And I mean, it's obvious, but the, the top line uh, finding is that, yeah, just one delegation was reported in North Korean state media in all of 2020. Right. And uh, yet in 2018, in the height of diplomacy, the number had surged to almost uh, 400 combined. So mm. it's it's um, it's really looking grim at the moment. Just are. to clarify, who is and who's not um, classified as a delegation? Does a tour group count as a delegation? It does not, no. Um, we are basing it on how the North Koreans themselves in official state media report on delegations. Mm. So tourist groups very, very rarely would be praised as entering the country in official North Korean media. Right. Um, usually the format is uh, a short, very short report. Um, Friendship Delegation X has arrived from country Y. And they visited the Arch of Triumph, uh, you know, give some information about their 
um, hosts as well. And then usually a, a small report on the day they go. And th there are often cases with uh, political parties visiting where it's the same. The only downside is there are delegations that we know take place that are not um, ever even reported in North Korean state media. So these would oh. be, you know, when diplomacy is um, either lacking or when it's emerging, uh, you sometimes get um, semi-secret trips uh, which just get overlooked both in the sending countries media and in North Korean media. And so we don't have those in the, in the database. So, uh, for example, when Joe, uh, State Department official Joe Yoon went to, uh, to North Korea and, and picked up um, Otto Warmbier and brought him back, was that I'm guessing that wasn't reported in North Korea. Would that have counted as a delegation if it had been reported? Yeah, if the North Koreans reported on it, it would be there. Um, right. But um, when um, yeah, there are some track two groups that kind of go under the radar a bit. And uh, Korean diaspora groups, for example, uh, Korean Japanese people visiting the fatherland, I'm guessing that they're probably not included under delegations either. The Chongyon groups, uh, I believe, um, I believe we do have them in there. Yeah, they, they are reported extensively in North Korean state media. Oh, they are. Okay, I didn't know they've still got attention. Okay. Uh, so that's a great tool for uh, NK Pro subscribers to look into what kinds of people have visited uh, North Korea and how f how far does the uh, the tracking go back, Chad? Uh, back to 1997, which is when our KCNA tracking starts. Okay, that's a, a great uh, yeah, 24 years of uh, of delegations there. Wonderful. And um, the last one that we're going to talk to you about today, Chad, before you go off, is the uh, the new DPRK ambassador to China. Um, it's uh, uh, it's a few days old, but it's still an interesting story. Tell us about the newly appointed ambassador and what's significant about him. Yeah, his name is uh, Lee Ryong Nam, um, and he is uh, closely affiliated with uh, economic foreign trade issues uh, in North Korea. He uh, has worked uh, substantially in China, in Southeast Asia, in Singapore, for example, on econ-related issues over the years. Um, and he was a bit of a surprise as a person to be appointed for this role. He has most recently been a vice premier in the North Korean cabinet. And, you know, oftentimes these foreign ministry ambassadors are usually coming from within the foreign ministry itself. Um, but for, for me, one of the most interesting things is um, who he's married to. Mm. So uh, we understand from informed sources that his wife is a lady called John Kyung Hee. Um, and she herself is the daughter of um, a former North Korean ambassador to China back in the early 1980s. But the really interesting thing about her is she's the CEO of Sogwang Media. And for those of you who have uh, listened to the podcast carefully, um, you may recall con a conversation between Jacko and I think Colin and Oliver, perhaps about um, Cold Noodle Fan yes. uh, some months ago, um, uh, which was, you know, the video series by Unar, Echo Truth, the YouTube star uh, of North Korea. And um, all of that's produced by Sogwang Media. So, Basically, the new ambassador to North Korea, his wife is uh, the sort of head honcho of the organization that produces those videos, which have actually sadly stopped. Um, mm. But 
yeah it's uh and and maybe that's one of the reasons they have stopped i don't know if they if she's continuing that work once they move to beijing it'll be interesting to see is the uh, is cold noodle fan still on twitter yeah the, the the twitter account is still there but it's um not posted for for ages now and uh, instagram okay. is stuck in time the youtube's have gone yeah, it's really unfortunate because those accounts were really, really something unique and quite spectacular by North Korean standards. And yeah. um, if they've been, you know, pushed off the internet due to sanctions concerns, I think it's we're we're poorer as a result. It'll be interesting to see if that picks up after um, uh, the new ambassador and his wife are installed in Beijing. Have they already moved to Beijing, or is that still uh, forthcoming? Well, this is a really uh, good question, because yeah. we've seen several North Korean ambassador appointments in the last year since the border restrictions started, and we've I've not been able to figure this out. Have Has this ambassador gone to Beijing yet? Um, mm. I've not seen any evidence, but we've heard from some uh, sources close to intelligence that um, there have been North Koreans leaving the country one way, and no one going back into the country since right. these restrictions started. So it is conceivable that he could do um, what the Russians are doing, what um, the delegation of diplomats leaving in March are doing, and just you know cross into the country that way. But it would mean that you'd have a new ambassador and an old ambassador both in China at the same time, because the old ambassador would be unable to return. That's that's right. Yeah, and that ambassador has been there since October 2010. So oh, that's a very long yeah. time. Should we be reading anything into um, the appointment of this new ambassador with regard to the importance of China in uh, North Korean business and investment? Yeah, I, I think the, I mean, for me, it seems like they're appointing someone who is going to be specialized in increasing foreign trade and economic ties between the two countries. He's, Ri Yong-nam is, is really an expert in that. Mm. Um, he's got, a, he, he speaks very good English. He's had extensive work experience in the Asia region. Uh, he studied overseas in Beijing. His wife studied overseas. Um, his wife's family, uh, her siblings have studied overseas substantively. Um, these, this is like a real true sort of power couple, I would say, of North Korea. And uh, um, he seems to have forged good ties uh, with those working in the economic sphere overseas for some time now is he uh, could he be likened to sort of a, a new version of Jiang son tech who had lots of pro-china ties back when he was alive before his, his fall from grace i'm sure he would not like that association no. <laughs> okay all right well thank you very much chad you've uh, got to go off to another zoom call so thanks for uh, coming on the, the podcast early uh, yep. and we'll uh, talk now to uh, Wangi and Jongmin about the uh, the latest border defection. Um, there was a recent defection across the DMZ, but a, a spectacular one, one that caused some consternation in South Korea. Perhaps, uh, Jongmin, can you give us the basic storyline there? Uh, the defection happened on February 16th morning. Um, it seems that um, bottom line is the military surveillance camera along the border caught him 10 times and the alarm went off twice, but the military took hours to actually um, detect him on camera and also to actually apprehend him. Um, it seems that he swam, um, according to his own testimony, according to JCS, he swam six hours from North Korea wearing a padded 
um, padded coat um, and a diving suit and uh, swimming flippers, which he left um, at the coastal area after emerging from water. And from there, he walked down southward. And then uh, while he was walking, it seems that um, after he was caught around four in the morning, he was uh, uh, caught on camera on four in the morning. He was captured at around seven in the morning. So after the initial detection, it took three hours for the soldiers to um, find him physically. But it even took longer for the uh, military to find him after he emerged from the water. Now, you're using the word caught there, but we have to uh, we, uh, clarify that he uh, he was actually defecting, not infiltrating. Is that right? According according to JCS, yes, there were some debate about this, whether or not he was a civilian. Some media reports were referring to his unusually clean look, uh, although the JCS was referring to him as a fisherman. But mm. the official description of the man is a defector who is a civilian. Okay, because sometimes uh, there's a, a, a fuzzy borderline between fishermen and military in those uh, uh, borderlands areas. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Um, first of all, uh, because there is a fuzzy line, military came under fire because um, because we don't know who is defecting or who's infiltrating, the military border security is important because of that. Yeah. But despite the heavily fortified and uh, despite establishing these high-tech gadget system for surveillance in the area, um, to uh, but they could not they could not apprehend the man uh, right away. Um, another thing is, it seems that he went for the civilian town after he emerged from water. We would think that, um, some people could think that if you want to defect, you would yeah. cross the border and um, just turn yourself over to the military. Right. But obviously thought, according to the military, the man could have thought or obviously thought that if he, sub if he goes to the military, they could maybe repatriate him back to North Korea or um, shoot him. So he was scared, it seems. So he uh, went to the civilian town instead. Okay. Well, uh, Wangi, can you add any more details to this or any other uh, uh, take on it? Yeah, maybe um, a little bit about how to interpret this. Um, like DMZ area, the frontline area between the North and South Korea, it's 150 miles. And it's a vast area for um, any gadgets or people who are staring at security cameras to monitor. And mm. you know, it's 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 been a chronic problem. It's been a chronic issue. Um, last year, there's been multiple cases um, like this. Um, some say it is an alarming sign that South Korea is not prepared enough for any potential infiltration um, by the North. Um, some say it is realistically impossible and the military should acknowledge that there can be holes. Um, it should be transparent about its limits uh, when it comes to border monitoring. So yeah, there's been some discussions um, even between the experts. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of these cases happening um, in the future. Um, mm. So that's that's I guess like uh, the takes that I've been listening um, by talking to experts. Yeah. I talked uh, last night uh, to uh, NK News podcast fan and regular listener, uh, mm -hmm. retired Lieutenant Colonel Steve Tharp, about this mm -hmm. issue, who mm -hmm. said that um, uh, on the one hand, it's um, it's not surprising, uh, especially 
you know, uh, given, as you said, you know, it's, it's a, a long border, there's a, a lot to watch. And also, over the years, we've seen a, uh, a steadily shortened time of military service. Mm. Uh, and these are the conscripts who are doing the, the work there at the demilitarized zone, you know, so from 36 months when he was in the military in the early days, uh, to, you know, just about 18 months now. Right. Uh, so it's probably not not surprising. And he also said that, you know, it's one soldier, not a unit trying to infiltrate. So it's really not that big a deal. Yeah, I mean, in this case, if it had we been don't 10 know. or 20 soldiers, it would they would have been found a lot faster, I imagine. Right. Um, so I think, I mean, Jongmin would have um, something to add here. But um, it's it's a different from a battalion trying to infiltrate um, right. the country. And this is just one person. And there could be a human error and of course like it would be better um if there is no human error and definitely the case um indicates that there's some room for improvements but um it's sometimes it is impossible to just see the area and keep uh, very alerted about uh, any kind of activities that's happening in the border and um it some people say that the military just should be just tell the people the south koreans that we're trying our best in the given conditions but 100% border security is an unrealistic goal. Yeah. Um, first of all, um, it's uh, you mentioned that it's just one person. Well, that's true. Uh, first, it's um, according to experts, it's maybe um, a little bit too much of a, a overblown reaction to like just one civilian crossing over to South Korea because first it takes so much effort for them to enter to cross the inter-Korean border yeah. when um, unlike in the you know before Cold War era there are so many other ways to come into South Korea if you actually want to infiltrate mm. um, like coming through China or many many other ways coming through Jeju um so and the second thing is um like Wangi said these are machines um it's a very wide range of not just land but also coastal area as well and although there are three types of devices um which are are thermal um the the camera that catches thermal differences and yep. also surveillance camera and also there are sensors that are attached to the stuff like barbed wire that if, right. if, if it moves, the military is alerted. There are these three, but still these are machines and humans have to watch them. And um, even though they are sporadically, it's, 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 it's in the border area, um, they cannot really check on all the, it's, many of them are mountains. So it's really hard to look at every single spot. And if the defector is coming from a very a far away, area the it's pixelated so it's really hard for soldiers to actually track them um like every single minute but and it, in the it, case of this defector he swam in the ocean right i mean he what there was no uh no barbed wire no fence uh oh, to uh, I, to go no, no, through I around i would i should have explained sorry so after swimming he went through the barb and he went through the drainage pipe under the barbed wire that was damaged and this was a oh. problem too because um um jcs found that there were three drainage pipes that they didn't know that they existed before oh. um yeah and that's a that is a problem um <laughs> there's no excuse for that um mm -hmm. and yeah so the third thing i have to mention is that this area used to be used to be monitored by more than one division but right now it's only 22nd division that is in charge of it 
So it's a lack of manpower. And it seems that mm -hmm. the three drainage pipes, um, it uh, sort of fell under the gap when they the, when the previous unit that took in charge of the area were leaving and yielding the responsibility to the 22nd division. So yeah. there are these multiple problems that are very chronic, like one yeah. you mentioned. Now, th this happened uh, on February 16th, is that correct? Uh, yes, Tuesday, yeah. uh, Tuesday morning, early morning. I don't remember the weather that time, but I think it was reasonably cold. Um, how much good is a padded wetsuit uh, in the cold ocean? So the JCS is referring to the U.S. Um, Navy guideline, it seems. So they are saying that it is possible for a human to swim around, I think, five to seven hours or something. Um, and he swam for six hours. It was, oh. I think the water was around, was it uh, five Celsius degrees or a, a little bit colder than that? Um, but uh, according to other guidelines in South Korea, only some are saying that only two and a half hours are possible in that huh. cold water to swim. So that part is also um, he, uh, um, he, going through heated debate right now. Whether so there's some question about really how long he was in the water. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, North Koreans are, are not known for having a high percentage of body fat. Um, has, you know, what's, what do you know about the health of this defector? Did he get hypothermia? Um, they didn't say. The reporters asked, but they wouldn't go into details. But he was sent to hospital. Interesting. Okay. Um, well, uh, Wangi, what can we uh, take away from this incident? Um, I think Jongmin already explained it very well. Um, as you mentioned, um, this is going to be a problem also in the future as the South Korean military um, uh, continues to replace the uh, decreasing manpower um, yeah. because apparently um, South Korean population is decreasing, going to decrease, and there's going to be uh, fewer numbers of a um, younger population in the future. So we don't have enough manpower. Those manpower is going to be replaced by machines, artificial intelligence. But at the same time, the people who are running those machines and artificial intelligence are humans. Um, right. So that's this is going to be a chronic problem. And definitely, we need to find a solution uh, for that. Um, but again, like having a, a realistic scope of what we can do, what we cannot do. Um, from my perspective and from some experts' perspective, seems to be a, a very important question as we move on. Okay. All right. Thanks to both of you on that one. Uh, Min-chan, let's talk to you now. I, I understand that the, uh, the world of uh, North Korea observers and experts has suffered uh, a loss recently. Sure. Um, uh, esteemed missile expert Michael S. Elliman uh, passed on Saturday, February 20th of melanoma, a type of skin cancer mm. um, at George Washington University Hospital. He was based in DC. Um, he was 62 years old, which is uh, far too young. Uh, Elliman uh, made his name uh, mostly at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, where um, he was employed for more than 10 years, um, but was generally thought of as, a, as the guy you'd go to um, after a heady missile launch, and he would calmly and kindly explain to you exactly what that meant. Um, so maybe you as a politician or a journalist would see a missile um, rolled out on a military parade and Mike would be able to tell you exactly what he thought the payload uh, range was, um, the history, uh, what kind of feel it had. Um, and he's known for being um, not only a, a scholar, but also a gentleman, just a very kind, generous person to everyone that he met. 
It's a, uh, a very sad loss uh, for his family, his friends, his colleagues, and the uh, uh, the North Korea Watchers community. Um, to a a much less serious topic, um, I'm reminded of the UB40 song "Red Red Wine." Uh, Mincho, I understand that Singapore dumped 4,632 boxes of red wine that had been destined for North Korea. Now, 4,632 boxes, that's a number that is both large and very specific. What do we know about this wine? <laughs> so this uh, report comes to us from the as-yet-to-be-published panel of experts report, um, ah. which is uh, scheduled to be published sometime this spring. Um, and Singapore has been very uh, enthusiastic about enforcing luxury sanctions violations, um, possibly because of the work that was done at NK News um, in regards to us breaking the um, PACA story and um, Book Say Shop and OCN mm. um, connection. But they were able to seize uh, a shipment of wines and juices that was being transshipped through Singapore. So origin uh, unstated, but destination eventually to North Korea um, uh, that happened in January. And um, a court, Singaporean court, uh, ordered customs to destroy the shipment um, in August. Okay, and, and that's because um, the, uh, the wine is sanctioned under, uh, well, under one of many different kinds of sanctions uh, against North Korea, is that correct? The granularity here is that um, the UN has luxury goods sanctions um, and it's up to states, individual member states, to define what luxury is. Um, the UN does have some specific guidelines for, um, say, statuary or yachts, jewelry, um, but uh, their definition on luxury goods as regards to alcohol is more vague and it's up to um, countries. Also, Singapore has its own United Nations Act, which basically means that they have they have the domestic ability to enforce United Nations sanctions, right? Because the United Nations can't really enforce sanctions themselves; it's up to member states. Right. Okay. So presumably, somebody, some, as you said, we don't know where this wine is from, but somebody somewhere in the world sold it, uh, and then it was shipped, uh, and then it's been destroyed. So North Korea, I can imagine, would not be happy. Would they be uh, trying to make a claim uh, for a refund, do you think? Um, well, so here's a here's like a little wrinkle um, that didn't make it to the article, but the juices that were also contained in that shipment may hint to the provenance of the original shipment. Ah. Um, are you familiar with uh, with Saris, uh, the juice company? Uh, oh, uh, it sounds vaguely familiar, but I can't say that I'm, I'm, I'm really familiar with it, no. So along with the red wine, there were several different kinds of um, fruit juices. Two of the manufacturers of those juices were Liquid Fruit and Ceres, both of which are South African um, juice production companies, and they produce ah. their juices in lovely South Africa, which may give us a hint to the origin of the shipment. At the same time, it's very common to be able to buy you know products wholesale somewhere else um, right and uh then take them you know arrange for transshipment to singapore onto probably china and then to north korea um but i thought that was a very like a slightly interesting fact um, yeah. embassy in pretoria a dprk embassy in pretoria is, is quite active oh really because south africa fought on the side of the united nations in the korean war didn't it i think south africa was one of the sending countries i could be wrong on that one 
Uh, it's still, yeah, it is interesting to learn that the uh, they do have a DPRK embassy in Pretoria and that it's quite active. Um, I'd be interested to know more about uh, North Korea, South Africa trade. Uh, Jongwin, the World Food Programme, is it true they might be leaving North Korea? As of now, it's not it's not a decision made already, but in the new document that they released as a revision document for their strategic plan for certain countries, they said that they may have to consider seizing operation entirely in 2021 if the border situation doesn't get better. That would mean that, um, first of all, uh, a lot of the food aid that come from many different countries, especially the things like uh, the nutrition biscuits for the yeah. tuberculosis patients and children, they all, most of them go through WFP. For example, if South Korea wants to aid something like a food aid to North Korea or yeah. Germany or Switzerland, most of them go through the World Food Program because it's like less politicized and they have the monitoring system and the staff, usually the staff in the country who can actually visit the beneficiaries and check on them if they are doing okay, if they got the actual biscuits and the food aid. But if right. they seize operation in 2021, it would mean that it would be impossible for any countries to go through WFP to help the most vulnerable population in North Korea. Gee, how long has the World Food Program been running operations in North Korea? Um, I'll have to check that, Jacko. Ah, well, then I, I, uh, I did check it beforehand since 1995. So they've been there for 26 years. So it would be uh, quite a, uh, a blow if they did have to, to stop um, food distribution to the to vulnerable populations in North Korea, wouldn't it? Yeah. And also, it's not just that. I've talked to researchers who are specifically um, focusing on North Korean agricultural issues and food insecurity. And another problem is, um, as Chad mentioned earlier, we have a dwindling population of the outside eye in North Korea who can actually yeah. tell things about North Korea. And for um, WFP um, and also FAO, actually, Food and Agriculture Organization, they work together to work on an annual ah. report about the crop yield of North Korea around spring, I think it's around this time of the year, actually. And um, if they are out, um, we can't really get any information about the crop yield. And that's problematic because they went through a lot of natural uh, climatic disasters. And um, we haven't already, we have already seen the emission of such data in 2019 and 2020. They, it seems that the World Food Program and FAO people didn't get to maybe sit down with the North Korean officials and get the data and publish that information. So that's another thing. Mm, okay, well, that is uh, serious news. But uh, you said it's not uh, definite yet. We just have to wait and see with that, right? So if you look at the document, um, they say they, for, they, they mention many, many difficulties that they have been going through in 2020. As we know that uh, not even the border closure, but also the movement inside North Korea was highly restricted. Mm-hmm. A lot of diplomats and humanitarian workers, they were, uh, they were just bounded in Pyongyang and they couldn't visit any beneficiaries of the aid work or so on and so forth. So they say that their work in 2020 was already intermittent and they yeah. say that if this continues and the and they cannot um, have more international staff in North Korea um, with the current level of restriction they have they may have to really consider it gosh okay that would be quite drastic uh, Minchal uh, North Korean ships have they returned to sea after spending the winter in port 
Well, at least 10 of them did in the month of February. Uh, NK News and NK Pro as part of its service uh, provides analysis of automatic identification system data, which is transmitted by ships um, as a navigation and also um, collision, anti-collision aid. Uh, and we were able to detect at least 10 voyages made by North Korean linked ships in the first half of February. Wow. And do we know what they're uh, out there doing? I mean, are these uh, fishing ships or are they uh, coal uh, transport uh, ships? Sure. So from AIS, um, it's difficult to uh, understand intent. Um, it's not like they broadcast that as part of the data. However, um, looking at ship movements um, and also being an analyst and looking at this data for a long time, um, you can get a good sense of their general intention, which could include coal smuggling. So out of um, eight of the North Korean uh, flagships, one um, was clearly on a commercial route, which is good news. Um, I've been tracking trade data and ship data um, all through 2020 and have seen commercial voyages disappear uh, in mm. addition to trade of uh, imports and exports um, from China to North Korea. Um, and the return of at least one uh, ship that used to make the voyage from Nampo to Dalian um, is, is heartening, even if it is only one ship. Um, and for the others, uh, most of them are connected to probable coal smuggling. Um, they conveniently go off AIS as they approach a popular coal smuggling hotspot called the Joshan Islands, which is near China. Um, and they would come back on uh, on their way back to the west coast port of uh, Nampo. Does that mean that they're turning off their transponders? Um, so this is slightly discussed in the upcoming panel of experts report, but uh, I think our understanding of how North Korean ships obscure or otherwise tamper with their AIS needs to evolve beyond just they turn their AIS on and they turn their AIS off. Um, it's increasingly clear that they have more sophisticated methods, which include having multiple transponders on ships. So oh. they can have, for example, um, AIS on all the time, but they broadcast those different identities. Sometimes they tamper with their transponders to broadcast different identities, um, either real uh, and take on the identities of real ships, defunct ships, or live ones, um, or they um, put in entirely uh, fake throwaway identities, which is just, you know, like a series of numbers. Wow, um, I see. So in, in having multiple transponders or in, in throwing off fake signals and things, is that believed to be a strategy to, uh, to evade sanctions? Um, it's associated with sanctions evading activity. And uh, we've seen that North Korea, um, along with many other countries, such as uh, Iran and Venezuela, have become very good at uh, tampering um, with their AAS, uh, AAS data um, in order to circumvent sanctions that are usually put on fuel. Um, and in this case, it's fuel and the export of North Korean coal. Right. Okay. Wow. All right. Uh, thank you for that. And keep uh, keep watching the uh, the ships. You're a great ship tracking sleuth. Uh, cyber hacking. Wangi, I understand uh, that there's some uh, new, uh, or rather new, well, a call for uh, more public information on North Korean cyber hacks coming from uh, the South Korean National Assembly. Have I got that right? Yeah, um, there is a bill um, proposed by the uh, uh, several lawmakers 
to make that information more public. Now, is it possible to ever know for sure where a cyber attack has come from? I mean, if you were a, let's just say, for an example, a Moldovan or Italian cyber hacker, wouldn't you want the world to think that you were uh, based in North Korea? Right, definitely. I mean, it's a, it's a very messy issue, right? It takes a long time for uh, the analysts or people who are investigating the cyber hacking cases to pinpoint the nationality of the worker, uh, the hackers. So it, it is a good point. Like it's really hard for anyone um, to um, make that uh, information publicly available um, because it takes such a long time for them to determine uh, the nationality uh, or the uh, where the location or where the attack is coming from. Yeah, because I'm reminded of what uh, Min Chao was just saying before that if ships can send off fake signals. Mm -hmm. uh, can hackers leave fake bits of code behind to make people think, oh, that's a typical bit of code that North Koreans use, but it's not really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a very good point. And that's, um, and that's what should be discussed um, when we think about whether the NIS um, should make this information publicly available. And, mm -hmm. and I, I think um, a little bit of a backstory to this bill should be explained because there's been a beef between the intelligence agency and uh, the one of the lawmakers who proposed this bill. Um, you, you remember the, the Pfizer hacking um, that's been reported widely by the media, right? Yeah, did, uh, did that happen? I mean, what, did North Korea actually hack a pharmaceutical manufacturer to get vaccination information? Right, so in a nutshell, the, the one of the lawmaker, Ha Taegyong, um, he says, that he heard that information from the the agency's uh, briefing um, mm. to the intelligence committee in the national assembly but the day after he made that statement uh, nis basically said no we didn't specifically mention pfizer uh, was hacked uh, mm. was or being hacked so it just tells a lot about the this the the structure of uh, information transmission between the intelligence agency and the public right when right the way it works is that um, the lawmakers listen to this briefing, they yeah. walk out of the room, and they, the two lawmakers, um, including Ha Taegyong in this case, tell that information to the reporters in Korea. Yeah. So when you think about that, the link between the intelligence agency and the public are just these two lawmakers. And sometimes um, there can be a mistake. And yeah. when there is a mistake, there is basically uh, virtually no way for us to cross-examine that information. Right, because the NIS doesn't talk. NIS doesn't talk, and rightfully so. It is an intelligence agency, and sometimes yeah. uh, making some information publicly available, yeah. it does compromise the security issues. Right, okay. So the what we have basically is it's, it's a leak, right? That National Assembly members who are listening to these privileged briefings are leaking information back to the media, uh, which sometimes gets uh, jumbled up. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, it's, it's, uh, if there is a lesson we can learn, um, you know, it, it tells a lot about the, the media landscape around North Korea, right? It's like there is a, such a limited access to the information yeah. and there is going to be more limitation as um, the delegation tracker shows. And as we've heard from Chad and um, Jungmin that there is gonna be less humanitarian workers or foreigners left right. in the country. And there are a very a handful of gatekeepers of that information. And when those gatekeepers malfunction, 
um, there's basically no methods left to us to cross-examine or uh, verify the information we are hearing from those limited sources. So um, if there is a lesson we can learn, um, you know, like news organizations or um, lawmakers, um, any gatekeepers out there in the media landscape, uh, we should be more careful. We should be more uh, accountable for right. um, disseminating uh, the information to the public because it is an important job. And we are living in an era where um, basically there is no break to the cycle of misinformation or disinformation that can yeah. be um, created from that. Okay, so as to the story of the uh, alleged Pfizer hack, uh, mm. you're saying that at this stage, we don't know whether that's happened or not. Uh, has, has Pfizer said anything? Um, we reached out to Pfizer, but um, they, Pfizer Korea, um, but yeah. they haven't gotten back uh, with a response. Okay. Yes, it was. Well, well, <laughs> watch this space. Uh, last story uh, for today. Um, Jongmin, it's about that time of year again for Rock Army and US forces combined drills. Uh, President Trump famously canceled them in 2018. Are they on this year? It seems that South Korea is aiming to downscale it. Um, but yes, it is slated for March. Okay, so there are, um, uh, what do they call it, uh, command uh, command level or command. Oh, gosh, I've forgotten how they describe them. But there are certain kinds of drills they do in, in spring of every year. Uh, has North Korea said anything about them? Uh, well, no, I don't think North Korea said anything about that since the party congress. Um, but okay. we will have to keep a close eye on it because joint drills, it was one of the core things that North Korea was taking issue with during party congress when it comes to inter-Korean relations. Right. And it's something that they've made a lot of noise about for many years, decades even, isn't it? Actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as long as we've all been alive. Um, does that mean we're likely to see you know, large uh, formations of, uh, of troop movements or uh, ships flying over the Korean, sorry, planes flying over the Korean Peninsula, that kind of thing? Well, I'd love to see the ships flying over the Korean Peninsula. That would be, I do look forward to that day too. Thank you. Yeah, airships maybe, blimps. <laughs> Actually, um, it seems that um, the actual movement itself would be, they are aiming to downscale it because of, first and foremost, the COVID risk is ongoing right now in South Korea. Mm. Um, so the actual movement would be uh, minimized, it seems, but it will be right. the computer simulation based uh, exercise. Ah, yes. Okay. Yeah. So computer simulation based. And uh, What's the uh, the current situation regarding um, uh, money for uh, U.S. troops in Korea? Has South Korea and America, have they reached an agreement yet or is that still uh, ongoing? There were some media reports that they settled or went somewhere close to being uh, agreeing on a certain amount of money, but it seems officially not yet. Well, it's not yeah, the Biden hmm. administration yet, and the foreign affairs team just started. So ah, right. So it's all it's still quite early days. The last thing uh, that that I remember, uh, and our, our listeners will remember, of course, is that uh, President Trump famously said uh, the bill is now five billion dollars, um, and uh, negotiations went on for a long time, but they were unable to uh, to reach a number that was amenable to both sides. Uh, okay, well, that is it for today. Any final thoughts to leave us with? Well. I think um, it will be an interesting month, March. We have mm. a lot of things already on our radar that we have to keep a close eye on. Um, mm. The joint drills, like you mentioned, and also the 
the the leaflet anti leaflet bill coming into effect. Ah, um, yes. Multiple court dates regarding the sectors in um in March also, and if you look at two thousand like the the years before, many times many missile tests by North Korea they are they start in March as well. So we it it could become a very busy month for North Korea watchers. Well, it should be a very interesting month. Yeah. And what will you be watching, Wangi? All the things Jungmin mentioned, plus um, if there is going to be any um, developments on uh, Washington's North Korea policy, right? Um, oh yes, they're doing that review, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, anytime we can hear more detailed uh, account of how Washington or the State Department um, are going to uh, approach the question, so definitely a uh, March and onwards are not going to be short of. Um, news materials for NK with regard news. to the uh, with regard to the policy review that the Biden administration is doing is that the kind of thing that we would expect uh, a, a formal statement or the kind of thing that, that we would hear the results only through leaks hmm. Jungmin would you like to maybe add on this well the policy review itself is it's a very very vague term and hmm. I, I don't think it will come out as like here here's a report uh public uh, made public as a policy review. I think it will come out more as like multiple statements by maybe Secretary of State um, Antony Blinken or other top foreign affairs officials and sort of showing the general direction about North Korea after they finish the review and we will be able to see it through their rhetoric. Right. Uh, and Minxia, what will you be watching uh, over the month of March? Well, Last night, Kaspersky uh, released its threat needle report um, uh, on North Korean linked hacking group, Lazarus Group. Uh, and generally, um, North Korea has been quite active in the hacking space through 2020. Um, mm. And that creates more opportunities for researchers to find out what they've been up to. Um, so I've been anticipating um, a series of reports coming out from uh, major uh, cybersecurity firms um, on North Korean attempts uh, across many industries, but specifically the defense industry. Um, mm. And also looking forward to the publication of the POE whenever it does come out, because usually when it does and everyone gets their hands on it, um, it creates quite a splash. And usually there's a um, series of cascading country reactions as they begin to address um, North Korean sanctions, violations, and evasion. Okay, well, that's there's no fixed date for that. Is that correct? Uh, from what I understand, there is no fixed date. Okay, all right. Well, that is great. Thank you uh, to all of you, to Jongmin Kim, Wang Gijong, and Min Xiao Choi for joining me on the podcast via Zoom today. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News account and you're a think tank, business, or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. For example, the North Korea Ship Tracker and the brand new North Korea Delegation Tracker as well. Inquire about access and the cost of a subscription at the email address membership at nknews.org today. Our thanks, as always, to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Arias Dare, our post-recording producer genius, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thanks and listen again next time. Mm-hmm.